Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, take and turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses this, uh, 23 through 26 this morning. Uh, Pastor Kenny had planned today to begin a series entitled Simple Yet Profound. Simple Yet Profound. And the focus of his, that he wanted to focus on today was the Lord's Supper. Indeed, the Lord's Supper, as we partake of it today, you're going to find in many ways it is a very simple act that we do, an act of devotion that is very simple. Yet if we really contemplate it, we find that it's very, very profound. We could spend months and months just talking about the Lord's Supper and all that it represents and all that it accomplishes in our lives. Now, uh, for your sake, we're not going to do that today. Uh, I got just a few minutes. I'm going to tr- do my best to, to, to carry Pastor Kenny's bags this morning and, and talk to you about a little bit of what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper as we par- prepare our hearts as a church uh, to take that together. Early this week, I came across an interesting article uh, in the Riverfront Times. At the time, I didn't know really why it was so interesting to me till Pastor called me last night and said, hey, or called me yesterday morning and said, hey, you're preaching tomorrow. And so, uh, but it was an article uh, in the Riverfront Times about the Jamestown Mall. Now, many of you probably remember the Jamestown Mall uh, that was located in North County, uh, one of the many malls in the greater St. Louis area uh, that was erected during that time. For those of you who have no idea, the Jamestown Mall was built and it was opened in 1973. And it was kind of known for several things. One, it was known for the huge skylights uh, and the, cl- the fact that it was climate controlled at 78 degrees always so that it could house all kinds of tropical plants and trees. Uh, more than just the shops that you could go to and, and buy things, it was also known as a place that hosted a lot of interesting and fun live events. One event that they hosted, there was this soap opera actor who kind of transitioned out of the soap opera world to become a musician, and, and he came to Jamestown Mall and, and performed a song, uh, kind of his hit song, uh, before he himself even became famous. He, he sang the song, Jesse's Girl, Rick Springfield. He came to Jamestown Mall. Jamestown Mall also hosted Victor the Wrestling Bear, now, when Victor came to Jamestown Mall, Victor had a 1,500 win uh, or a consecutive win streak. He, he hadn't lost a match to anybody or anything, probably for that matter, in 1,500 matches. But when he came to Jamestown Mall, a 19-year-old Olympic wrestler beat him. That, that win streak uh, came to an end. Making an appearance at Jamestown Mall was none other than Muhammad Ali, when he was promoting his line of cologne. Kind of interesting. Maybe the biggest event that ever came to Jamestown Mall packed out over 2,000 people in attendance. There was a Farrah Fawcett lookalike contest with 108 Farrah Fawcett lookalike uh, contestants. Now, many of you might be interested to know this. Jamestown Mall brought the first Chick-fil-A to the St. Louis area. (laughs) Kind of neat. Now every year, many of you probably remember this, going to malls. I I remember this. You went through the mall, you walked through, they had all those different fountains, and and your mom or dad would give you some pennies or or some nickels. 
my dad would never give me dimes or quarters. Uh, that just wasn't his way. Uh, but, he, but he'd get a penny every now and then, and you flip it into the fountain to do what? To make a wish. That's right. And, and at Jamestown Mall, kind of interesting, every year they would scrape up all of the, the coins that were flipped in the fountains, and they would gather them together. And every year they would bring in 400 orphaned kids, and, and they would pay for them to have a good time and and they would pay for them to have all kinds of great gifts that they would have probably not gotten otherwise. Now, unfortunately, the Jamestown Mall went the way of a lot of shopping malls. And in 2014, they finally uh, shut their doors. And just in the last few weeks, this is why the article was written, just in the last few weeks, because the building was in, in such disrepair and was so ran down, they finally began to tear the building down and demolish it. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, okay, why in the world would I care about the Jamestown Mall. I have no idea. <laughs> but in the article that I read, there was a line at the very end that caught my attention. After talking about her sadness of seeing her childhood mall, her childhood hangout, this mall that she loved going to being demolished, the writer of the article said this. So if there's, she said, if there's anything to celebrate, it's our memories. If there's anything to celebrate, it's our memories. And I thought, what a great line describing what we've come to do today as we've come to the Lord's table to partake of the Lord's Supper in obedience to what the Lord has told us to do. We celebrate our memories of who he is, what he did for us at the cross, what he's doing in our lives today. We celebrate our memories. We celebrate, as it says here, we'll see in our text in a moment, we celebrate in remembrance of him. And today, as we turn to 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul lets us know right up front that everything he's about to tell us about the Lord's Supper came straight from Jesus himself. In other words, Paul didn't get this from a Bible college class, what he's telling us about the Lord's Supper. He didn't get from going to seminary. He didn't get it from his denomination. He didn't get it from reading some book that somebody had written. He got it straight from the Lord Jesus himself. Now, what Paul is dealing with in the larger context of this passage is the misuse and the abuse of the Lord's Supper that was taking place in the Corinthian church. But in the midst of that, as he confronts them in their, in their sin and in their immaturity, he injects the real intention behind Jesus giving the Lord's Supper to us in the first place. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, if you have your Bible opened, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's word? It says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you. You may be seated. There's three thoughts I want to highlight as we prepare in a moment to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Number one, the Lord's Supper, as we see here, demands us to examine if there's anything of the betrayer in us. 
It demands us to examine if there's anything of the betrayer in us. Look at verse 23. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. I want you to underscore that word betrayed. In all four gospel accounts of when Jesus celebrated the last Passover with his disciples and in which he instituted the Lord's Supper for his church, you have included Jesus identifying his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, and then you have Judas exiting the stage to do just that, to go and betray Jesus. And in the context here, 1 Corinthians 11, it's interesting that here, as you, as you have a bunch of churchgoers who are totally desecrating the Lord's Supper table, Paul includes a quick reference to Judas. He describes what Judas did to Jesus as a betrayal. That word betrayed there in verse 23 is a word that literally means to switch hands to switch hands. It has a connotation of, with one hand, you show somebody love and kindness, friendship and loyalty and trust. And just as you do, and they receive that from your hand, they, they, they put their guards down, they open their heart and their life up to you, they, they allow themselves to be vulnerable to you. At just that moment, with the other hand, you punch them in the gut. You slap them in the face. You stab them in the back. You inflict pain. You inflict hurt. You pretend to offer one thing, but then you give another. And you know, nothing hurts like betrayal. If you've ever been betrayed, you know the pain of betrayal. There is nothing that hurts like betrayal. And that's simply because you can only be betrayed by someone you feel close to. A few years ago, I was reading a biography of, of Billy Graham of his life and his ministry. And the author said that probably the thing that hurt Billy the most, the relationship that hurt Billy the most in his ministry was the betrayal he felt when the Watergate scandal broke out and the, the tapes were released and, and he began to listen to those tapes, conversations of the president and his friends that, that he, Dr. Graham, considered friends. He thought he knew them. They had had all kinds of spiritual conversations, good conversations. They were one thing in his presence. But what he was listening on those tapes was something totally different. And he said he felt betrayed. As a matter of fact, he went home after hearing those tapes. And his biographer said he wept. And not only did he wept, the pain was so deep that he vomited. Betrayal. It's an awful thing. It's pain that comes from close range. Judas appeared to be like the rest of the disciples. He was baptized by John the Baptist, like they were. He made an outward profession of faith. For three years, he heard the same teachings that they heard. He saw the same miracles. He participated in the same ministry. He witnessed the same interactions. And yet, he never became what they became. Even on the night when Jesus enjoyed the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus says his betrayer was the one who dips in the same dish as I do. Now on that table that night, there would have been several bowls of sauces to dip your bread into. You would have shared the dish with the person sitting right next to you. Just imagine in your scene when you go to a Mexican restaurant. You got a group of you sitting all at one table. They don't bring a little bowl of salsa for all of you. You have to share with the person sitting right next to you. You don't reach over the table unless your salsa is empty and they haven't refilled it quick enough. 
kind of the same image. The person you share that dish with is the person sitting right next to you. Judas was sitting right next to Jesus the night before he was to be crucified, perhaps in the place of honor, without a doubt the place of intimacy. And in the Bible, Judas stands forever as a warning that it is possible that you can be a member of a church, that you can hold a position in the church, that you can be a greeter, that you can be a pastor, that you can be a small group leader, that you can work with our next generation ministry, that you can be a deacon, that you can be something in this church, but still not be a Christian. Judas stands forever as a warning that you can be connected with Jesus, but not connected to Jesus. That you can be on the side or at the side of Jesus, but not on the side of Jesus. That you can easily, yet tragically, substitute religion for a relationship. I can't help but think that there's some of you here today that, that maybe one of your problems with Christianity through the years is you've just known a lot of Christians. Well, the Bible says that it is possible that somebody can be a Christian in name only. And, and while they, they wear the label of church membership, and while they say they're a Christian, they could, in fact, like Judas, be as far away from God as possible. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, a few verses after our text, Paul writes, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the Apostle Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? A few years ago, a buddy of mine from seminary uh, called out of the blue, and he invited me to go with him to the St. Louis Science Center for the Star Trek exhibit. And I went, I did go, uh, the whole time, I kept kind of having that feeling like I was a big dork. I, I was like, I, this is just not for me. But I, I have to admit, I didn't really want to let on. But I do know a little bit about Star Trek, just, just a little bit. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. If any of you ever followed the original series, you know there was a character uh, who was the chief medical officer, Leonard McCoy. They called him Bones. And as the chief medical officer, when something happened to somebody, maybe they got sick or there was an accident or some other problem, he had his little tricorder gadget that, that he would kind of wave like a wand over that person. He would check to see if they had a heartbeat, if, if they were breathing. Is this person dead or alive? And again, he would kind of wave that wand over them just to test to see what their health was. And oftentimes you would hear him say these words. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. And pretty much every show, somebody on that ship was dying. Kind of unrealistic, right? There's only like 400 people on the ship, but, but every episode just about somebody was dying. He's dead, Jim. But he only said that after he checked that person out. He only checked after he checked for vital signs and signs of life. If there was no pulse and if there was no heartbeat, and if his little prop didn't work right, he knew that that person was dead. Now, it's interesting, we come to this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul does the exact same thing to the Corinthians. But he's not the one that is inspecting them and checking them out. He wants them to check themselves out, to determine for themselves, are you spiritually alive 
or are you spiritually dead? My experience has been through the years that lots of people come to church and they join the church. They get baptized, they walk an aisle, they sign a card, they do whatever. And many people have what we might call churchianity, but they never have Christianity. They never have a real salvation. They never have the real thing. They're not really alive in Christ. They just kind of put on the church clothes. They kind of know the lingo, but inside they're spiritually dead. You know, it's a terrible thing. You came to church on a regular basis, but didn't have the real thing. You never examined yourself. You thought you were okay just because you were a member of First Baptist Church, but you didn't really have a genuine salvation. You didn't have the real thing. Perhaps you had head knowledge, but it never gotten down into your heart and transformed you from the inside out. Jesus says it's imperative to look at your life and to inspect for fruit. Where's the fruit in your life? Where's the evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you have fruit that is growing, that is visible, that is recognizable, that shows? Some of you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I don't support my church financially at all. Oh, really? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but pastor, don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me to get involved. I'm too busy. I don't want to do it. Gotcha. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I have no desire whatsoever to crack my Bible open on a daily basis and, or spend just even a few moments in prayer to my Heavenly Father. Are you sure about that? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but don't talk to me about my social life, what I do, my relationships, my sex life, or any other aspect of my life, or my dating, or my relationships. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but don't tell me what I can and can't watch. I, 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 it doesn't matter what I look at. It doesn't matter what I listen to. It doesn't matter what I explore on the internet. Okay. See, the question is this. Are you truly saved? Are you truly his? Listen, if there is any doubt about the authenticity of your salvation, because it doesn't fruit the, pass the fruit inspection, Judas, this isn't Adam Cruz telling you this. This is, this is from God's word. Judas stands as an example to us always that we ought to be warned. You stand in a very dangerous place today. If there's no evidence that you have truly been saved, if Jesus Christ hasn't transformed you from the inside out, I'm not talking about perfection, but are you at least progressing in your faith? Are you at least maturing? Are you farther down the road than you were five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago? If you can't point to fruit in your life, listen, we're being warned not to partake of the Lord's Supper. I wouldn't take a million dollars to partake of the Lord's Supper today if there was any doubt about my salvation. But maybe you're here and you do have those doubts, but you would say, Adam, I want to nail it down today. Maybe the Lord's convicting you. I'm not trying to create doubt in your life, but I want to give you a wake-up call today. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Judas is forever an example to us of that reality. 
that sad reality. I want to encourage you today. Let's get it settled. Let's get it settled. See, as we come to the Lord's Supper today and we look at this passage, it forces us to examine our lives to see if there's anything of the betrayer in us, a false Christianity, a false relationship, a substitution of religion for a relationship. But secondly, the Lord's Supper compels us to remember what's so easily forgotten. The Lord's Supper compels us to remember what's so easily forgotten. When I take that simple piece of bread in my hand and that simple little cup of grape juice in my hand, my mind travels back 2,000 years to the cross of Jesus Christ. And it reminds me that what happened back there in history was done for me. It was done for you, personally, individually. If you're like us, probably the, the type of mail that you receive more than any other type of mail is junk mail. And you know the kind of mail I'm talking about. It's addressed to occupant or resident. If the envelope doesn't have your name, or if it does, it's usually a computer-generated label that may or may not have your name spelled correctly. But in short, uh, you pick up real quick that it's not personal. If, however, you get a piece of mail with, uh, that, with your name handwritten on it or typed, or if you recognize the, the return address and you know the person who's written it to you personally, well, what we usually do is we throw the other aside and we generally open that kind of mail first. And it's, always almost, it's always, almost always something good. Personal mail tells us that someone has taken the time to communicate with us, with just you. Well, as we come to the Lord's Supper table today, we're reminded here of the personal nature of the cross when Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for who? For you, for me. He did it for you. He did it for me. Knowing all your sin, knowing all your shame, knowing all your guilt, knowing everything there is to know about you, he did it for you. And he did it for me. And so that's why we come to this table together today. We remember together. With the bread, we remember Jesus' broken body. Remember the, we remember the fact that the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, humbled himself in the greatest and the lowest way possible by clothing himself in human flesh and becoming a man. He suffered in his body. His body was beaten, scourged, spit on, crucified with nails to a cross. And on a day like this, with extra emphasis, we focus our thoughts on that reality. We focus on that and nothing else. Not our to-do list, not everything that we've got planned this afternoon or this week, or, or this holiday season, we focus today on nothing else but Jesus Christ and his broken body crucified for us. With the cup, we remember Jesus' shed blood. With the cup, we remember that because of the shed blood of Jesus, we have a sacrifice. We have a substitute. We have a savior. We have a redeemer. His shed blood reminds me of what it took for the wrath of a holy God towards my sin to be satisfied. We see with his shed blood what it took for him to be able to pass over my sins forever. When I was a kid, I can remember a group of us boys at Frohart Elementary School in Granite City, Illinois. Uh, we, were, we always had some interesting adventures at recess, uh, some that didn't always end so well. Uh, 
But I remember one particular day we were, as a group of uh, boys, we were learning about the power of a magnifying glass. Maybe you did this too at some point. One of my buddies had a pretty cool magnifying glass that he brought from home, and we took a small pile of dead leaves that were all kind of crumbled up and some dead grass, and we kind of put it together in a little pile. And we held that magnifying glass just the right distance from the sun to our little debris pile to form a tiny circle of brilliant light on that pile of debris. And after a few moments of doing that, it began to smoke. And then it burst into a little flame. (laughs) We were lucky we didn't get detention that day. We got in trouble (laughs) for a lot less than other times. But somehow that glass lens was able to gather the heat from all of the rays of sunlight that was striking its surface. And it, it directed the combined sizzling intensity to one spot on our little pile. Now I want you, if you would, in your mind's eye, to picture the world. Picture the globe. It's covered with billions and billions of people. And above it, like rays from the sun, comes the blinding, powerful intensity and heat of the righteous judgment and the wrath of God. And it's bearing down on this planet. It's bearing down on humanity. But then I want you to imagine a great cosmic magnifying glass as wide as the world itself being placed between, gathering all the intensity of that burning wrath and focusing it on one spot, in one place, at one time, on one individual, on Jesus Christ nailed to the cross. There at the cross that we've come to celebrate today and remember, Jesus Christ became the focal point of God's wrath towards every sin that you and I have ever committed. When the Son of God was crucified, when his body was broken, when his blood was shed, when the Son of God was crucified, the wrath of God was forever satisfied. And isn't it interesting that we are so prone to forget that? We are so prone to lose sight of that. We are so prone to allow our minds to be occupied by any number of things. And the thing that matters most in your life, and the thing that matters most in history, and the thing that will matter most for all of eternity, just kind of has a way of slipping to the back. See, as we come today to the Lord's Supper table, the Lord's Supper table brings us to a place to remember some of those things that are so easily forgotten. And thirdly, we're told here that the Lord's Supper builds confidence as we move forward into the future. He says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now the Bible never tells us how often we should partake of the Lord's Supper. It just says as often as you do it, here's what you do. Anyone time anyone says that you have to do it this many times, understand that's a man-made rule. It didn't come from Jesus. And notice here he doesn't say we eat the bread and drink the cup that it become, in a way that it becomes the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus as some churches believe. Nor does it infuse us with grace to merit any kind of right standing with God. Rather, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act. It's a symbolic act that is for believers only. It's for those who only who have said, Jesus, I come to you as a sinner 
in need of a savior, but I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you were buried in a borrowed tomb and that three days later you rose again. Jesus, I come to you believing that you are the only hope I have of going to heaven. So I place my faith and my trust in you. I stake all of my eternity on you and you alone. And I turn completely over to you, trusting that you alone can save me and make me right with God. The Lord's Supper is only for people who have made that type of commitment, placing their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ like that. It is a symbolic act. But listen, we don't want to minimize that. It's a symbolic act that is powerful and blessed and used by God. See, notice what Paul says here. He says, when we take the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a sense, we're preaching a sermon, so to say. Most of the time when I baptize somebody, somewhere as I'm talking with that person I'm about to baptize, I'll say something along the lines of this. I'll say, hey, today is your opportunity to preach a sermon to the world. By getting in that baptistry, what you're doing is you're telling the world that you believe that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, and that three days later he rose again, and that you believe he is the only way to a relationship with God. And you're also telling the world that you believe that Jesus took the old Jew, put that to death, crucified it, you were buried, and as it says in Romans 6-4, that you've been raised to walk in a brand new life that Jesus can transform you through his gospel. You're telling the world that that is possible. You're telling the world that that is our hope. You're preaching a sermon. Well, the Lord's Supper is kind of the same thing. You know, on any given Sunday, we have one preacher around here, right? One preacher. But you know, on a day like this, all of us become the preachers. All of us get to, to proclaim the message as we take the Lord's Supper. We're proclaiming to the world that we identify with Jesus and we do so unashamedly, that we believe that he came in, in the form of a man, that that body was broken. We believe his blood was shed for our sins. We believe that he did that for us and that's the only hope that this world has of becoming right with God. See, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming that message. And we do so knowing that whatever price tag that comes with identifying ourselves with Jesus, it will be worth it all when Jesus does in fact come again. Because every time we take the Lord's Supper, we not only look backwards, Paul tells us here, we're always doing it with an eye that's looking forward. We do it until he comes. You know, I love coming to a service like this. I love sharing this time with you. But I'm looking forward to that day when, when we don't ever do this meal again or at least not in this form. Why? Because in that day, we're going to be in heaven. That day, we're going to be with our Savior. And it's going to be a whole different table that we get to sit and enjoy. See, the Lord's Supper is a link between the two comings of Jesus. It's a symbol of his death, but it's also a promise of his second coming. Each time we take it, we are reminded that the same Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfect life, who died a sinless death, and was raised from the dead, we're reminded that one day he's coming back to this earth so that we can forever and always sit at his table. You know, there used to be a Southern Baptist evangelist who would tell the story of the opportunity he had to play checkers with the world champion checker player. And he built a relationship with this guy and, and he played a few quick games and obviously he was slaughtered uh, by the champion. But because of the goodwill that he built with this gentleman, he had the opportunity to witness to this man and share the gospel with him. And after sharing the gospel with this world champion checker player, 
after sharing with him that God, of God's provision for salvation, he looked that man straight in the eye and he said, sir, now it's your move. Now it's your move. And you know, in light of all that Jesus has done for you, he went to the cross 2,000 years ago with your sin upon his back, took the wrath of God that you deserve for everything you commit, fact that he died in your place he did all of that for you there's no question about that the real question this morning is for every person here because of that what's your next move what's your next move let's bow for prayer every head bowed every eye closed